Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, April 16th. Before I get to Wednesday's news and continue my series asking the question of which player should be considered the fifth most accomplished WTA player in the open era, I have to let you all know that these podcasts continue to be made possible day in, day out by our friends at Diadem Sports. And I only wish I had used gears that has helped tennis players across the globe elevate their games by designing the most innovative performance tennis gear on the planet. I only wish I had a racket that was developed with my performance in mind and carefully crafted for a specific type of playing style, whether it's power and explosiveness, precision and control. I wish I had a place that would have the best option to help take my game to the next level. And thankfully, for all of you cracked listeners out there, you do have that in Diadem Sports Diadem uh, with their racket technology, the Nova 100, the Elevate 98. There are five different types of strings. Of course, the Solstice Power, the Elite XT, the Flash, the Evolution, and the Impulse. Uh, They've got it all. It's your one-stop shop for all of your tennis needs, not just rackets and strings. They've got their premier tennis balls. They've got their drawstring bags for you to carry it all in. Incredible swag as well. As I always say, I am rocking my diadem hoodie. Not only does it get me in the podcasting mood, it's I would objectively say the most comfortable piece of clothing I have in my closet. And of course, we are so grateful for our friends at Diadem Sports. The least we can ask you to do, go to their website, diademsports.com. I guarantee you, you'll like some of the stuff on there that you see when you order. Use our promo code CR50. Another way Diadem is so, you know, we're so thankful for them. They're making things easier for you, the listener. 50% off your order if you use that promo code CR50. Go to their website, diademsports.com. And again, we are so grateful for their continued support. The least we can ask you to do is to go support them as well. So diademsports.com, the promo code is CR50. With that being said, let's get to the news. And it was a busy news day Thursday from the professional uh, tennis world. A bunch of different things leaking out, a bunch of different perspectives, such as to the financials, of course, the continued scheduling. There was rankings, freeze news, that and more. I'm going to try and cover all of it with while still trying to manage to keep this pod under an hour with including the Monica Sellis coverage I'm going to be doing a little bit later. I guess that's a little spoiler for you, a little tease, I should say, who I will be talking about. I'm going to look at Monica Sellis's career after I get to the news and it was so impressive. I guess let's do this tangent now. I will be, you know, I talked about Justine Ennen on Monday. I talked about Venus yesterday. Salas, for me, is the fifth player with a case in the open era to be called the, you know, behind Navratilova, behind Graf, behind Everett, behind Serena. Uh, in terms of her accomplishments, she's the next person in the argument, or the next person I'm going to be making an argument for. But, you know, I had this whole take on Steffi Graf's 19, I think, 91 season where she was 17 years old and she made 
the finals in all 16 tournaments she played on the year. She won all three majors she participated in as well. I had a, a whole take prepared, like, this has to be the best season, you know, given the perspective, given her age, all of these different things in WTA history. And then I looked up some of Steffi Groff's seasons, and I tweeted this out late last, late last night, but Steffi Groff, legitimately, her 1988 is just ridiculous. I mean, you look at what she accomplished during that season. In 88, she wins all four Grand Slams. Of course, that's a famous moment, infamous to win all four single slams in the same calendar year. It doesn't happen often, if ever. So shout out to her. She also, uh, overall, gold medalist that year. She goes 72-3, and 12 finals, 11 titles, and 14 total tournaments. And it might not be her best season. I mean, I, I don't think I appreciated just how good Steffi Groff was until I started doing this exercise. And I'm kind of done with the men's greatest of all time debate. You want to say it's Federer. You want to say it's Djokovic. You want to say it's Nadal. That's fine. But... We should be talking more about how good Steffi Graf and Martina Navratilova and Serena and Chris Everett all are and the competition between them. That's a big four, you know, as much if not more so. Uh, what they accomplish collectively versus the big three. It's, it, it's, you know, that is a definitive big four. There's no arguing those four, the four most accomplished, and each of them just so impressive. I started looking through Serena's 2013 season again. I'm, I'm very much off track right now, but this has been a really fun exercise, and if you, you know, you're going on tennis deep dives, you're watching matches on YouTube, just take a deep dive through the Wikipedia career statistics pages as well, because they get more and more impressive as you get closer and closer to the top of the game. I just, I wish I had that added appreciation. That's you know, this has been a humbling experience for me. I've learned a lot. I've gained a greater appreciation for some of the accomplishments that have happened in the past, and I think it'll make me a better tennis fan moving forward. So I think this is something all of you tennis fans out there would enjoy as well. Anyways, let's try that again. West off, let's get to the news. Um, so the the first thing that I, I want to say is, you know, of course, there's so much, you know, uncertainty for so many individuals, health, safety, that always is where I want to start these podcasts. Those things are considered first. Uh, but we are starting to learn about the financial impact this all is going to have on the tennis world. More and more numbers become clearer, and, you know, you can just start finally quantifying some of these some of these takes there's just again there's math behind it now and one of the big pieces that came out yesterday and from Christopher Clary at the New York Times he wrote about it the USTA plans a 15 million dollar bailout for various tennis groups within the country and again you know go subscribe to the New York Times go read Chris's article I don't want to give too much of it away but I do want to read the highlights uh, the USTA will cut its top executive salaries by 20% for the remainder of 2020 as part of an effort to provide emergency assistance totaling about 15 million to American tennis facilities, teaching professionals, and grassroots tennis organizations. Um, now, you might be asking yourself, where does the USTA get this mo- get the money to fund all of their things? And he talks about it. The U.S. You know, the importance of the U.S. Open and this relief program being announced, despite the U.S. Open not yet being canceled, not yet being postponed. Still, you know tentatively on the schedule, although we did learn today, uh, earlier this morning from Colette Lewis, I'm actually recording this on a Thursday, that USTA executive director says it's highly unlikely the U.S. Open will happen if spectators are not allowed. That's just something to keep in mind. But, you know, the U.S. Open makes $400 million, or I should say generates $400 million in revenue each year. 
And that is how the USDA pays for everything. That's how executives get paid. That's how local programs get paid. All of these, you know, Orlando, how was it built? By saving up after, you know, that $400 million for years and years and years uh, that you keep cashing that in. Things such as, uh, you know, the USDA development programs and the subsidies they give to all these local training centers and just on and on and on. It's all funded by the revenue from the U.S. Open. And the U.S. Open does not have pandemic insurance to cover its losses. And that's what makes this $15 million bailout. Well, you know, $15 million for various people, it, it, it's a significant sum of money. I think there are going to be, a, you know, a lot more, of course, would be needed to keep everything at normal. But, you know, at a certain point, you, you can't just pay for everything. That's not how the world works. So it's very admirable that the USTA found this money. And, of course, it's already paid for given some of the cuts in programming, the cuts in salaries that the USTA has made. So that's encouraging as well that they're able to do this without sending the whole organization under. Um, and look, you know, Chief Executive Michael Dow's talks. He says, we've got to keep these tennis clubs and teaching pros afloat through this as much as we can. And he estimated that 85% of tennis facilities in the United States had closed by the end of March. He talks about how so many pros right now, all of these different junior coaches, professional coaches, it doesn't matter who you may be, uh, they don't know when their next uh, paycheck is going to come. So $5 million uh, has been earmarked in grants for tennis facilities to provide access to the general public as well that may need financial help. Another $5 million will go to tennis and education programs that support underserved communities. They also intend to provide some relief to teaching pros by helping to cover a significant portion of their 2021 membership dues and pro tennis registry, the two primary organizations that certify teaching pros in the United States. Those grants are expected to total about $2.5 million. Now, for perspective, the PTR has 9,000 members in the U.S., the U.S. PTA about 13,500 members. Uh, And, you know, Dan Santorum, chief executive of the PTR, I've heard from a lot of our coaches who have either been laid off or furloughed and don't know where their next paycheck is coming from. So this kind of assistance from the USTA is particularly welcome. And I think that's a sentiment we can all agree on. Now, again, how far will this money go? I really don't know, but every dollar at this point counts. And, you know, $15 million is it's a significant sum. It's admirable. Uh, you know, they say, Dow says on Wednesday, this relief plan would remain in place, funded by about $20 million in cuts that have been made, as I mentioned, through salary reductions, re- lowering expenses in marketing, player development, and operations, even if the U.S. Open is canceled. So that's really good news to know that uh, all this money won't be just taken away at the last second and again I don't want to give too much more of the article away because there are other tidbits in there it talks about what some of the other organizations have been doing in comparison to the USTA it talks about what they're considering to do for lower ranked players who are obviously American based who are uh, the USTA has incentive in them succeeding and you know what those grants might look like from the USTA what it might look like grants that are being considered at the ATP, ITF as well. And so it's a really good article. I highly recommend all of you go read it again. It's Christopher Clary at the New York Times, the article, USTA plans a $15 million bailout for various tennis groups. So that was a big piece of news, certainly, uh, and something that caught my attention. But, you know, you start to think about uh, all of these bailout programs. And of course, we've had guys like we had Mitchell Kruger on, who we talked about extensively with. Uh, I think that will be released today. We also had Dennis 
Kudla, Bethany Maddox-Sands, of course, Christiane, who's a WTA Player Council member, people like Paul Anacone, Ben Rothenberg, Steve Weisman, Mark Lucero. We've, you know, the what is the USTA, WTA, ATP? I don't. USTA was the wrong thing. What are the ATP and WTA tours going to do uh, to? you know, help players out in this time, the fact that there are no unions, the fact that everyone's really has to look out for their own individual interests from federations to tournaments to players because there are so many individual contractors in our sport. That, that's something we've been talking about at length for even beyond the past month and a half, but perhaps even more than that as well. Um, but you start to wonder, where is the money? Is there money available to pay for any of these things to help subsidize uh, all of these players in the meantime? And, you know, at Anna K Forever, Oleg S. I don't know his real name, but you know one of my favorite Twitter follows out there uh, brought up a really interesting question. What happens to the bonus pool this year? Was it reserved at the beginning of the year? Is it supposed to be generated throughout the season? The bonus pool, of course, being for ATP Tour Masters 1000s and ATP Finals bonus pool. You know, if you qualify, how much you make if you qualify, what your year-end ranking is. It's $11 million bonus pool for the ATP, and it's a $4.5 million bonus pool for the WTA. Now, the season hasn't been canceled yet, and there's an argument to be said, well, if there are still incentives in the, you know, if there's still incentives and we eventually get to that part of the season, even if it's an abridged season, shouldn't those incentives still be played for? Isn't that what their purpose is? And there, there's some merit to that argument. A year-end bonus is a year-end bonus. And, you know, why should we take away the the incentive for the top players to continue to succeed and it's not just top players anyone who wants has a shot to be at the top of the game why would you want to take away their incentive to be at the top of the game to push that much harder at the end of the season play those extra events at the end of November uh, to you know not just to chase points and to chase the year-end finals but because they want the best ranking they can because they've earned the right to compete for those bonuses but you know it's a time of crisis, and I'm, I know I'm not the only one who has the sentiment of, well, do you really need the bonus pools? Do you think players 1 through 12, which is really what the bonuses is all about in the rankings in the year-end finals, uh, those are the players who, I guess, reap the benefits of it the most. Do those players financially really need these bonuses in these extraordinary times, in these extraordinary circumstances? If there's you know, $15 million available for these players, shouldn't and it can do more good in the hands of all of these other players. It'll help, you know, the health of the sport. It will just keep the game in a better place if that money is used elsewhere this season. Uh, it, that thought has so much merit as well. And, you know, again, the number one player ranking finals, if qualified, they get, I think, $3.6 million. I mean, look. Novak Djokovic has been not just hours and publicity and uh, you know financial resources to fighting coronavirus pandemic across the globe. I think he gave another million or so uh, again yesterday, and his efforts are so admirable. And this is not to disparage him as a human, uh, you know, to disparage his quality as his of his character, but. Does he need that $3.6 million this year? Wouldn't it be better in the hands if distributed between players 400 and 600 just to keep them afloat this season? Yeah, there's a lot of merit to that as well. And so I'm sure the ATP player councils and WTA player councils are well aware of that bonus pool. Uh, I'm not sure if the bonus pool is something that's agreed upon before the years, if that's something that's accumulated throughout the year in terms of funds available for the bonuses. Uh, but it's certainly something to keep in mind. There are some pockets of money, of course, appearance fees, but those are more 
based from the tournament to the players, and I don't think that's an ATP WTA sourced funding. I think that comes out of the pockets of specific tournaments. Uh, but there's mo- there, there's more money than you think, but less money overall. I would I would say there's there's more in the mar. It's tough to say. I guess. Because financially, all of this is tough. It's very easy to just say, yeah, everyone should get paid, and that's just not how it really happens. Um, but yeah, it's just it's an interesting thought. There is more money available, I think, than all of us are aware of. Still, again, less, though, in total than you would think for a sport of the nature of tennis. That's the point I was trying to get to. Anyways, uh, if you want to learn more about the cost of doing nothing on the financial crisis facing tennis, you know, the math behind it, the investigation, the analysis, the big picture look, uh, go read the piece, The Cost of Doing Nothing, on TennisAccent.com. Our friends there, uh, Karen Health, I believe, putting together a fantastic piece that sort of gives just a perfect overview of the entire situation, goes into it with more depth and, uh, you know, and more than just that. So be sure to go check that out as well. You can find that link again tennisaccent.com. Matt Zemek has tweeted it out as well for those of you who follow him. Uh, so you can find that on his Twitter feed. Uh, elsewhere, you know, again, scheduling-wise, the organizers of the ATP 500 in Hamburg want to host the tournament later this year as the German government has banned all major events until August 31st. Uh, so again, just throw them into the mix of crowded schedules. Should we get tennis this year, it's going to be it's going to be elsewhere. It'll be a cluster. It's just going to be incredible to see, uh, you know, what tournaments get sanctioned, what tournaments get preference, what if the players play, given all the th- different options that may be available to them. It's going to be really interesting to see. Maybe they'll just continue to play 250-500 events, and it'll get to a point where t- the guys ranked 200 through 400 are needed to fill the spots at these 250s. And so, you know, it'll be just no one's playing challengers. Everyone's playing 250 level, international level on the WTA side or higher. And God, the implications of that are scary just to think about. But there are a lot of events jockeying for those final weeks of the year. Would not surprise me in the slightest if we see the tennis season extend into December should we be at a point where we can play tennis later this year. And actually, that brings me to my next point because Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, I was speaking optimistically in an interview for Vanity Fair, and he was asked about, does he think sports could return without fans? Could players be isolated in hotels and training programs and teams all be placed in one area and they get routinely tested to ensure no one's exposed to anything? And under that scenario, in that controlled environment, could sports return? And, you know, I I should say, could sports return? And Fauci said yes, but only if it's in those controlled environments. And it's very difficult to see how international tours like the ATP WTA could pull off that sort of isolation, the sort of testing policies needed to resume play in a way that a domestic league may be able to. Now, we talked to World Team Tennis CEO Carlos Silva last week, and he was cautiously optimistic is the word I will use, that there could be a World Team Tennis season this year. And that sort of program, I know uh, similar ones exist, similar constructs exist across the globe. Uh, That I could see returning this year. I could certainly, you know, again, in a place that we're safe because they they could isolate the teams in one area. They could find one tennis uh, court location facility that they could all use. It's still immensely complicated, but there's a world where I could see it happening. But on the ATP and WTA tours, players are traveling across the globe to various countries, playing various events, meeting various people, um, and to pull off the sort of testing, the sort of isolating to say, hey, all players to 
again, I'll just use an example, Australia, and we're all going to stay in Australia, and that's it. Um, and you're all just going to be rotating. Every you know, every week there's going to be a new event on the grounds of the Australian Open. It, it just doesn't feel very realistic. Um, and so, you know, I could see Team Tennis returning, and John. we talked about John Millman's proposal yesterday. And, yeah, you know, there's a world where John Millman, uh, where Australia does their own thing this year. But I, it, I don't know. I, we've talked about it before, so I don't need to go on at length. I just think it's going to be difficult for tennis to return until not even, you know, do I think there needs to be a vaccine first? Maybe, uh, but certainly not until travel restrictions are died down and testing uh, is at a point where we can test someone whenever whenever necessary, even if not 100% necessary, just when testing gets to the point where everyone can get it whenever uh whenever needed, I suppose. So I do worry about that for tennis. I also mentioned the rankings freeze, uh, the ATP statement. They responded. The WTA froze their rankings yesterday, or I should say on Tuesday. Yesterday, the ATP confirmed that the freeze for the FedEx ATP rankings are effective March 16th, 2020, and apply to any time-sensitive records uh, over the suspension period of the tour. Now, March 16th is interesting because that means if you were playing a challenger event or a futures event that first week of Indian Wells when Indian Wells got canceled, those points still count on your record. Now, the top guys don't lose Indian Wells points, but the bottom guys, the bottom guys, that's not what I meant. The other ranked players, the outside the top 100 guys, get to keep their points from that week as well. And there were a bunch of cancellations at various different places at various different times. So, Again, just a little bit of chaos, which is what we all need in our lives right now, certainly. Uh, there there are some other news stories, and again, I want to keep this pod under an hour, so I'm just going to go through them really quickly. The We talked early in the week, there was someone, uh, and Colette Lewis highlighted it, who came out and said uh, that they think all non-Olympic producing athlete sports, all non-revenue sports, sports such as tennis and, you know, uh, at, at the collegiate level should be canceled and that the financial windfall, no football, no basketball, or no basketball tournament, potentially no football this fall, uh, will lead athletic departments to tough choices. And they're all going to have, uh, you know, that he suggests that the non-revenue sports, sports like tennis that aren't producing Olympic athletes that uh, really aren't, you know, what is their purpose is his argument on a college campus. What do they do for college athletics that they should be cut or that they're the most susceptible to being cut I think you all, again, I spoke about it at the time, why I disagree with that. And yesterday, ITA CEO Tim Russell, he came out with a letter, a full response to uh, the argument made by Dr. Stephen Dittmore, who, again, the article was, more universities may need to eliminate sports, and that would be bad for the U.S. OPC, but should it matter? And he goes in-depth into arguments about why he disagrees, and he gets four, four you know, key bullet points. Is he offers a voice of reason, historical and philosophical perspective, excuse, philosophical, philosophical, leave all of that in. Hey, great shot to me. Philosophical perspective and reality as some hope, but not false hope as hope is not a strategy within turbulent times to reaffirm the true roles of athletics within the American higher education enterprise to keep college first in the phrase college athletics and student first in the phrase student athlete as Arizona State University President Michael Crow suggested to me when I took my current job five years ago to call on the non-revenue 
Avenue Sports to be part of the solution to use this opportunity to propose a new and different business models for our sports that assist athletic directors and presidents in dealing with the new financial reality in order to preserve the rich traditions and values of a wide array of athletic activities on college campuses and to speak to the strengths of college tennis as a leader in these endeavors, a sport that was so willing, uh, so willing quickly offered to, for possible elimination. Now, uh, you know, he goes in depth into all of this. It, it's quite the piece, and it, it's fantastic. And, it, you know, he makes arguments for why tennis means more to a ca- uh, college campus than just Olympic development, why, uh, you know, it's the non-revenue sports that generate something like, or generate that produce something like 500 or is it 50,000? No, it's 500,000. There it is. Olympic sports that are the non-revenue ones uh, created opportunities for about 500,000 students, while football and basketball generated about 150,000 opportunities. And why those non-revenue sports are just as valuable, why, again, collegiate athletes is about, you know, student athletes, not just producing athletes, not just uh, job training. It's not just, hey, I'm here to play sports in college before I go on to my professional league. That's for 99.9% of college athletes, that's not why they're doing it. That's not the purpose uh, behind what they are doing. And so it's a fascinating piece that I, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on now. Again, we're 25 minutes into this news section. So I'm actually going to save my thoughts for two reasons. One, Chris Halioris, Mastikoyak, and I are going to be doing a college tennis GSP later tonight uh, that should be released either Friday or early next week for all of you listeners, where we're going to talk about this and more from the college tennis world, too. Uh, I believe we're going to be having ITA CEO Tim Russell on the podcast early next week to discuss his very letter, and I'm going to be able to talk about his response, break it down with him, maybe even push him in places where I have questions. Uh, but I did want to bring that to your attention. You should all go read it. And again, you can find it. ITA CEO Tim, Rus- Tim Russell responds to Athletic Director U by going to their website, wearecollegetennis.com. You can find it on there. It's, it's an incredibly thought-provoking piece. So if you have any interest in college tennis, you really should go check it out. And, of course, getting back to the financials with there being no final year-end rankings, um, you know, there are financial implications for so many coaches, and Chris Hallioris asked the question, uh, you know, coach, it's common for coaches to have incentives in their contract based on final ranking, knowing that's why the operating committee would uh, vote not to publish final rankings, thereby costing their colleagues dollars, not to mention donor dollars. Uh, you know, again, we will talk about this on the podcast tonight, but the idea that coaches will lose out on money because there's no final rankings, because they're not going to get to play uh, their conference tournaments, they're not going to get to play NCAA tournament, and that's coaches at every level. Uh, but so many of these college coaches, you have to imagine, are feeling it after something like this happens. And again, we're going to talk about that and more on our college GSP later on uh, today, actually. So be on the lookout for that to release. A couple of other fun things. Monfils, Azarenka, Fodini, Madison keys all in the mutual madrid virtual open uh so that event keeps getting cooler and cooler with the players that are willing to play it's going to be really interesting to see and then the last thing really fun thing instagram friday 7 p.m cest time i don't know what that means but i do know that it's going to be Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray on Instagram Live together. Those are two guys born a week apart. They've known each other for the longest of time, you know, both professionally competing against one another, all of these different things. 
guaranteed to produce some content that will be on next week's edition of Overserved. And if you haven't checked out this week's edition, go do that now. You're missing out on great content, folks, and you don't want to be missing out any further. With that, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we will get back with my thoughts on Monica Sellis. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Now for today's monologue, and as I mentioned at the top when I went on my early tangent, this whole week I've been looking at some of the best primes in WTA history to try and determine who I think has the claim to be the fifth most accomplished player in the open era in WTA history. And the reason I say fifth, why aren't I looking at the top four? As I mentioned, Graf, Navratilova, Everett, Serena, they're the top four. The order is certainly up for debate, and maybe we'll do that a different week, but just with the slams they achieved, their best seasons, their longevity, all four of those players covered it all, and they all had maybe the four best careers in professional tennis history, Uh, and again, that's a debate for another time, but I'm looking at the fifth. Who was, you know, on the, who was right around that level, and because on the men's side, it's so clear, right? It's it's Djokovic, Federer, Murray, uh, Murray, excuse me, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, you know, they're on their own level. And then there's the Sampras, the Lendl, the Connors, the McEnroe, the Borg level of players. Uh, I'm curious who constitute that second level of players for, you know, the WTA. And if any players in that second level have a claim to being a top-tier player, the same way Pete Sampras would claim he belongs closer in the cohort with the big three maybe than he does the Lendls and the Lavers of the world, and maybe Laver would make that same argument. You know, does sell, what are the argument for the number five players? Do any of them have an argument to be considered in the same level of player as a Serena, a Graf, an Everett, a Lova, again, a Chris Everett? And, you know, it's been fascinating because you look at some of the primes of these players, as I said, and you're just like, wow. Of all of, you know, there have been some just incredible individual seasons over the course of tennis history and because there are so many players playing each and every year it's hard to keep track of all of the best seasons but today I want to talk about someone who is certainly the most accomplished teenager in the history of the game male or female and that's Monica Seles and I'll start by saying this our friends, our friends, I, I've only spoken to them once, but I'm very fond of their work, so I'm going to say my friends uh, at the Body Serve did an incredible deep dive at you know the social, the political uh, implications of Monica Seles' career, and you know you can't discuss Monica Seles without, of course, mentioning the fact that her career uh, overlapped by such an immense tragedy when you know a crazy fan comes onto the court during a quarterfinal match and stabs her, and uh, you know that's one of those moments in tennis history that I think we all are well aware of regardless of the era you were born in because that was one of those what if moments that was one of those just where were you when it happened or if you weren't if you grew up playing tennis it was a story you certainly ended up hearing about And, of course, to have something like that happen to her in 1993 when she was at the peak of her powers, when she was just, you know, she turned 20 years old in 1993, so she was still 19 when it happened. I mean, 
how can you ask anyone and you know her recovery from that the you know her psychological uh the psychological effects of that incident and her bouts with depression her eating disorders that happened to her all of these different things uh they talk about that at length they break it down they do it with such excellent depth and with grace with humility with class that's why they're two of the best in the business that's why i hope to make them my friend someday we'll do a crossover pod because they did such a good job breaking all of that down, and you know, I, I don't want to rehash. I, rehash is the wrong word. I, I don't feel comfortable enough going through all of that because I just am not familiar enough with the history. But that is a hundred percent a part of Monica Sellis's history, and it's something you have to consider when looking at her accomplishments and you know what could have been. And you know, in terms of tennis accomplishments, that's what I want to talk about in terms of what she did. You know, how you play in the 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 length of her career her po- when she came back from that her accomplishments after you know uh, when she came back and ended up winning a slam again i believe it was during the 1995 season uh if not the 1996 season uh, it was 96 or 95 final of the US Open where she ends up losing that match i believe to Steffi Graf in three sets then she comes back and wins the 96 title as the number one player uh number one seeded player and of course there were things such as the rankings freeze when she was uh you know i i I feel bad saying when she was stabbed but uh because it just doesn't feel like when she was attacked that's the word i'm looking for when she was you know just attacked and there was this discussion of should the wta freeze her ranking keep her at number one until she comes back and ultimately they do end up giving her a top seed at the major events to you know sort of make up for it and you know that was scrutinized at the time but in my opinion a very good decision a justified decision you know it was through no reason of her own that monica Sellis was injured and that she had to step away from the tour and so for her to come back and be the number two seed at the 95 U.S. Open that just made so much sense for so many reasons um, but I, I don't want to you know so so I, I guess I wanted to give you the brief history in case you had you weren't aware of it or just you didn't remember how exactly it happened when it happened but I do want to talk about Monica Sellis's career because it, it's fascinating and I talked about her being the most accomplished teenager of all time let's look through her 1990 through 1992 seasons because they're simply spectacular. And let's start with 1990. She's 16 years old. She goes on a 36-match win streak at the beginning of the year. She wins six straight tournaments. Uh, I believe she ended up winning in that 1990 year. What were the six she won straight? She won uh, the Miami. She won Miami, which at the time was Lipton International. She won in San Antonio. She won in Tampa. She won uh, in Rome. She won in Berlin, and then she ended up winning uh, in Paris, and, you know, her finals over those last three tournaments in Rome, she beats Navratilova in the final. In Berlin and Paris, she beats Steffi Graf in the final. Those are two of the three best players in the world at the time, with the third being Monica Seles, and again, Monica Seles, two hands on the forehand and backhand, the lefty, just how hard she hit the ball. I had a conversation with Amy Frazier on the Cracked Interviews podcast a couple of days ago, and Amy went out of her way to say, yeah, I've never, you know, no one had hit the ball that big up until that point when Monica joined the tour and just the pace she played with, the angle she could create with her two hands off of both sides, her ability to take balls early, go down the line. I was actually watching some of her matches versus Graf in those early 90s on YouTube last night, and 
it's just stunning, the level of play. And then you consider she was under 20 years old when she was doing it all. Again, that has to be added for perspective. But so getting back to 1990, 36 straight matches. She was the youngest ever French Open singles champion at age 16 years, six months. She saved four set points against Steffi Graf in the final before going on to win that match, 7-6-6-4. Um, and I mean, she was the youngest ever. She goes on youngest ever to win the season-ending championship that year. Fifty-four and six, nine titles and finals. So, by the way, nine and zero in finals during this season. In the fifteen events she played, sixty percent of events, sixty percent. You know, she won sixty percent, made the finals in sixty percent. That's better than the numbers we saw from Enin, from Venus, from Federer, from Djokovic, even in their primes. It was just better than that. And of course, she had sixteen top ten wins during that season. And you know. Unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, I guess Steffi Graf was also that good. It's crazy to me that, you know, 1990, you look at what Celis again accomplished during that season. You look at the timeline of it all, what she did at the majors. She didn't play Australia, but quarterfinals, Wimbledon's third round uh, U.S. Open. You can understand why she wasn't quite able, despite being that good, maybe the best player on paper that season, to not be the number one ranked player in the world. But over the next two years, she was the best player in the world. Her 91-92 seasons are just special. And in 1991, again, I, I went on this rant. I was ready to talk about how, why 91, her age 17 season, was the best season in WTA history. And the joke was on me because I learned there's even crazier stuff from Navratilova and Graf. Uh, but at age 17, she played 16 tournaments, made the finals fall 16, won 10 titles, in those 16 finals. So again, she's over the 60% mark in terms of the tournament she plays, she wins. She made the finals in all 100%. That's, you know, one of probably five players in history to do just that. I saw a Navratilova season where she did that. I think I saw a Graf season where she did that, but that's crazy. 74 and six overall. She missed Wimbledon due to an injury, but at the other three majors, she won and she won decisively. You look at that 91 Australian Open uh, in the final for Monica Seles. She knocks off, I believe, uh, Novatono 5-7-6-3-6-1. But then French Open final, she knocks off Sanchez Vicario 6-3-6-4. At the U.S. Open, she knocks off Navratilova 7-6-6-1. And, you know, the winning from there just kept going. She won another year-end finals. She finally got to number one in the world and ended the year as number one. And you look at the 10 titles. She won Miami, Houston, L.A., uh, Tokyo, Milan, Philly, on top of those three majors and the year-end finals. She also had 22 top 10 wins. So she was playing the best, and she was beating the best. I mean, 74-6, and 16 tournaments, 16 finals. That just doesn't happen. And it definitely doesn't happen at age 17. I mean, who is 17 right now? Yannick Sinner just turned 18, but can you imagine if he had this sort of season on the ATP Tour, you know, how crazy we would go? And rescue at, what was she, 19, maybe 20 last year when she won the U.S. Open, and that was an amazing accomplishment. Celis did all of that and did it, you know, two, three years younger. It's just... It's remarkable when you think about how talented Monica Sells was. And then, of course, you get to 92, her age 18 season. Uh, you know, she unfortunately, she 
played 15 tournaments, only made 14 finals. That's a huge drop-off for her. You know, she actually missed a final, but 70-5, and five, another 10-title season for her. That's again, over the 60% mark. Uh, she won the Australian Open, won Roland Garros, run, won the U.S. Open, all, you know, for her defending titles there. It was her third straight French Open title. Uh, and you, you look at, you know, her one loss in the Wimbledon final was to Steffi Graf, who was also at the top of the game. That was a 2 and one loss, but she went back. She went on to win the year-end finals. She went on, as I mentioned, 19 top 10 wins outside of the majors. She won in Essen, Indian Wells, Houston, Barcelona, Tokyo, Oakland, and then those year-end championships. I mean, listen to this stretch from 91 to 93. 22 titles, reached finals in 33 out of the 34. Uh, so she won 22 total titles, excuse me and reached finals in 33 out of the 34 tournaments she played. That's from the start of 1991 through February of 93. So if she was in a tournament from 91 to 93, she made the final. I mean, that's not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. Literally 33 out of 34, and she's winning, you know, two-thirds of the event. She's over 60% of her tournaments for a three-year stretch. That's the best uh, of any of the primes we've discussed, men or women. And again, we haven't discussed the, the four above her on the WTA game, but that's just exceptional. She won 92.9% of her matches over this stretch. She's 159-12. and 12. That's the best in this stretch. 55-1 and one at the slams over this period. Period. won seven titles in eight events, lost that Wimbledon final, but again, eight finals in all eight, uh, and she did miss that 91 Wimbledon. Otherwise, that would have been the longest streak, I think, of finals in WTA <coughs> excuse me, history. I mean, and now you start looking at what she accomplished during her careers because I think it's safe to say, you know, she goes on to win the 93 Australian Open and then obviously the, you know, the tragic stabbing happens in April of that 93 season. So I'm going to call that her prime. And that prime, even though it's, you know, shorter in length, again, for reasons out of her control, uh, it's ridiculous. And it happened at ages 16 through 18. That's just some incredible perspective uh, for everyone. Now, you know, you look at it, what, even though, uh, she, you know, she does come back. I think that's really important to point out. She comes back at the end of 95. She plays through the beginning of 2003. And, you know, during that stretch of time, 95, uh, 96, she ends as the year number two. Uh, she also ends as a top 10 player every season from 97 to 2002. And given, the, you know, what happened to her during her career, that's exceptional. That she came back to win a bronze medal at the Olympic Games in 2000. That's exceptional. And uh, especially given the circumstances, you know, that she had a second half of her career, uh, that's just, it's amazing. That deserves so much credit on its own. And, you know, she wasn't bad during that stretch of play either is really what I'm trying to emphasize. Now, was she winning at the same rate she was before? No, of course not. But she did go on to win four more Rogers Cups. She ended up winning another title uh, in Rome as well. I mentioned that 96 uh win that she had at the Australian Open. She made finals at the 95 and 96 U.S. Open, finals at the 98 French Open, but in total, she played 40 total majors, nine titles, four finals, five semifinals, 
13 quarterfinals. She got to the quarterfinals or better in 77.5% of the major events she played. That's elite. That's spectacular. And now, you know, I have this long list of accomplishments that she has in terms of the records that she accomplished during the course of her career and where she stands in some of the WTA leaderboards. And I want to go into some of that now. You know, in terms of win percentage. She's top five in win percentage in WTA history on every surface but grass. Fifth on carpet, fourth on clay, fifth on hard courts. Sixth best career win percentage in singles matches in total. And she's ahead of players like Ennin and Venus. And I'll get to that um, tomorrow, you know, comparing all three of them. But the only players she trails are Serena, Martina, Graf, Everett, who and Margaret Court, who, as we said, Margaret Court we're not talking about for many reasons, but, you know, the other four, those are the big four in terms of the WTA history, and she's she only trails them. Seventh youngest player to win an eight, uh, WTA title. That doesn't mean much, but, you know, she spent the sixth most weeks ever ranked number one, and the only player she trails, Everett, Williams, Navratilova, Graf, and Martina Hankis, who maybe, after going through these records, has a case to be in this discussion, particularly if you throw in her doubles accomplishments as well. But again, I, I, you just the reason I brought up, I keep bringing up the context for Monica Seles is she has all of these records despite the vast majority of her accomplishments. You know, again, she was really good from 96 to 2002, but 90 to 93, she was so good, so exceptional in her prime that she is in these conversations, you know, sixth most weeks ever, ranked number one. She's 178. That's behind Hingis, Everett, Williams, Navratilova, Graf. Sixth most consecutive weeks at number one. That's 91. That's behind two different Graf streaks, Everett, Navratilova, and Williams. So again, she's right there. Sixth most year-end number ones, tied with Hingis and Ennin, trails Davenport, who also has a night. Now, I don't think she was ever quite at this level, but through longevity uh, has a discu- uh, has a case through, again, into this discussion discussion um but Serena Everett never to love a graph she's Two-time WTA Player of the Year trails only Serena Navratilova and Graf. Seventh most Premier Mandatory or Premier Five titles at nine. She does trail Enin Davenport, Sharapova, Hingis, Graf, Serena there, but that is more I think a product of again the longevity, the fact that her prime was you know stolen from her. I don't feel rude saying that. Uh, sixth most finals, eighth most semifinals, three year-end titles. Trails only Everett, Serena, Steffi, Navratilova. Tell me if you get sick of hearing that at this point. Again, ninth in total titles in WTA history. Higher than Venus, higher than Annan. Trails a bunch of players as well. Ninth in finals. Fifth highest winning percentage at all Grand Slams, 181 and 31. She only trails the big four there. She won three straight majors, made six straight finals, six straight semifinals, and has the sixth most major titles ever uh, with nine major titles uh, over the course of her career that trails Serena, Graf, Everett, Navratilova, and Court only. She has the most major titles. And again, just to put this in perspective, most of what she accomplished happened while she was a teenager. Uh, you know, uh, all, most major titles of any player in tour history, men's or women's, uh, in terms of Grand Slam titles before their 20th birthday. She was 33-0 and to start her career at the Australian Open. That's the longest undefeated streak for the tournament in the Open Era's history. She was the first female player to win her first six uh, Grand Slam singles finals. Again, seventh most major major finals ever. Seventh most major quarterfinals. On paper, her career, despite being just you know certainly marked by tragedy, 
was still exceptional. And, I mean, you start to look at her head-to-heads as well. And, you know, the biggest one, of course, you talk about is Steffi Graf, who goes on to win, uh, what was it, 22 or something major, something crazy like that for Steffi. And, you know, obviously Steffi's incredible. No one's trying to take anything away from her. And, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the total course right now. Steffi Graf, in terms of major titles, she has. Let's look at it. We're going to get there. We're scrolling up. 22. Hey, great shot by me. 22 Grand Slam singles titles. Uh, and, of course, for her, you look at when all, so many of them happened. We're really through, you know, starting in 1987 was when she got her first and all the way through her last in 1999. But, you know, 87 to 96, where she wins 21 of – that's crazy, by the way. She wins 21 titles in that span of time. Um, you know who would have been her number one rival during that time? Without question, Monica Seles. And do I think Monica Seles wins at least – three more majors if nothing happens to her uh yeah I do between that 93 and 95 stretch I 100% do she would have been 22 years old I mean that's literally her finally the mental and the physical sides just being on tour that long and I'm not saying she needed any work because she had already shown that sort of dominant level but she would have been an even better player and so that we were robbed of the potential Groff Sellis rivalry is one of the biggest tragedies in all of tennis histories especially the contrast in styles graph the one-handed backhand, the slice that she used so frequently uh, versus Celis, who was just Mach 5 at all times. It would have been just such a contrast. And what's so amazing is you look at their records through that 93 Australian Open final where Celis ends up beating Graf 6-2 in the third. Of course, they played so many times at majors. Even Let's talk about their major encounters through 1993. Uh, 89 semifinals French, Graf knocks off Celis in three sets. Round of 16 Wimbledon, Graf knocks off Celis that's 89. 1990 French Open final. Celis, 7-6-6-4, her first Grand Slam title. <clears throat> Overgraf, the next year's French Open. Or, excuse me, the 92 French Open. Celis, 10-8 in the third. Overgraf to take home another title. Graf, that same year's Wimbledon. 2-1 and one over Celis. The next year's Australian Open. Celis, three-set win over Graf. So you just look early in their careers. And, I mean, at the majors, legitimately, it was a 3-3 split, and they had played at round of 16 or later. They had played in you know multiple finals up to that point, three, I think, through that 93 season, and it was a 3-3 split. Like I, I don't know what more you could want from that in terms of the total head-to-head. It was 6-4 Graf at the time, and you know it's not as though they didn't play later, although Graf does get wins in the U.S. Open uh, finals in 95 and 96. Celis gets a win, and the Australian Open quarterfinals, 99, Graf knocks off Celis in three sets, uh, 99 French Open semifinal, but it was three all in high-pressure, high-intensity matches before tragedy struck Celis, and I think this could have been one of, if not the best, rivalries in tennis history, and certainly there's a case that their early years already were, even on a sample size of six matches at the Slams through 93. The results, I mean, they played a 10-8 in the third already at that point. They had played multiple three-set matches, uh, so it already is that it's exceptional, but, you know, I think she played Graf relatively even up through that point, and of course, Graf ends with the 10-5 career head-to-head advantage over Celis, but just some context behind that number now. Eight 
age-wise, of course, Salas, uh, I think it's like 17 years younger, maybe a little bit yet less than Martina Navratilova, who, of course, was still playing, but near the tail end of her career during Salas's prime. Um, you know, Salas, a 9-7 and record against Navratilova, and you look at where they played. Navratilova won the first three encounters. Salas, uh, four out of the next five. And, you know, from there, the, the later on you get, the more it leans towards Salas. I think from 92 onward, she went 4-2 and two against Navratilova. And of course, they had some battles over the years. That Paris final where Navratilova in 93 uh, knocks off Salas. I believe it was 7-6 in the third. And that's not Roland Garros. That's the Paris tournament. Uh, but that Wimbledon semifinal, Salas 6-4 in the third over Navratilova. The U.S. Open final, Salas 6-1 in 91 over Navratilova. Those were all great matches. But, you know, Navratilova was still really good through the end of her career. You look at her final season and where she ended. She ended her last season ranked number eight in the WTA ranking. So it's not as though, her, I mean, her play, while maybe not the same as it was in her prime, was still exceptional. Uh, so that's a good, you know, that's a good advantage for uh, Monica Sellis in these moments. And then you start to get to some of her lower tier, you know, just by ranking opponents. And I mean, she owns so many of them. Gabrielle Sabatini, eleven and three record for Sellis. Uh, you look against Mary Pierce, five and four record for Sellis, but Pierce won the last three, uh, all ninety eight and later. You look early on, you know, all pre uh, nineteen ninety three, pre. Uh, you know, again, the tragedy in April. Sells was 3-0 and against Mary Pierce at the time. You look at her record against someone like uh, Conchita Martinez. I mean, Monica Sells is 20-1 and against Martinez during her career. She hadn't lost to her until the 97 Stanford quarterfinal, so I think that speaks to the dominance of Sellis there. Against Mary Jo Fernandez, Sellis is 15-1 and as well. Uh, and again, you keep looking against uh, Yana Novatona. Interesting because they were 4-4, four and four, but you know Sellis was 3-1 and one against her, or 2-1 against her up until 92, 3-1 through 95. Then uh, Novatona gets some of the wins. Excuse me, I butchered that pronunciation against Jennifer Capriati Sellis eight and five she didn't lose she lost to her once uh in 91 once in 92 but was four and two against her prior to the 1994 season uh you look against someone like Martina Hengis that's really the only one Sellis really fell up short and of course Monica Sellis uh never played her until 1996 but that was all Hingis in that one, 15-5 advantage again, though. This is near the end of Salas' career, the beginning of some of these players' career. She was, Davenport was 10-3 and against Salas. Venus, you look at their record, 9-1. and Serena, 4-1. and But, you know, from that, again, that I think you have to take all of it with a grain of salt because from 1990 to 19, you know, end of 1990, beginning of 91 through 1993, uh, the beginning of 1993, Monica Sellis was arguably, I don't even think it's arguable. I think she was the best player in tennis in a time when Steffi Graf was still near the peak of her powers. And if you're going to say, as I do, <clears throat> that Graf, Navratilova, uh, Williams, and Everett are the top four in the game, you do have to say that Sellis was as good, if not better, you know, pre-tragedy as Steffi Graf. And does that mean something? Is there a what if there? Should that be factored in? And I think if you're making the argument for her to be top five in terms of most accomplished, in terms of, you know, arbitrary, I'm putting quotation marks as I say it, the best WTA player in in history, one of the best, certainly, 
uh, you have to factor that in because you, or you have to say, yes, that matters because over her three-year best stretch of time, she was the best player in tennis and you can't, you know, you can't make up for lost time. You can't just say she. You can't just say she would have won three more French Opens, two more U.S. Opens, and two more Australian Opens. And you throw in the seven slams, and you take a couple away from Graf, and that puts her at sixteen. Graf probably ends up around sixteen as well. You know that's so hypothetical. You just can't do that. That's not how tennis history works. But there's certainly a case that in terms of her ceiling. Monica Seles is a top five player, and I know Venus in terms of longevity, in terms of throwing in her doubles accomplishments as well, belongs in that conversation. And I think Justine Ennen, you look at her prime, her and Seles are two of the only players in history. In fact, some final Seles stats for you, some final records. The list of players who have reached all four Grand Slam finals in a calendar year. It's Margaret Court, Chris Averett, Navratilova, Groff, Hingis, Ennen, Seles. You know, 21-0 match winning percentage in one season at the majors. You've won at least, you know, it's Graff, it's Court, it's King, it's Everett, it's Serena. And it's a Celis. In terms of youngest champion at the French Open, three consecutive titles at the French Open. Celis has done it, and Ennin has done it. 33 consecutive wins at the Australian Open. She stands alone. Three straight Australian Opens. It's Hingis, Graf, Cauley, Court. Uh, win the Australian Open title in your first attempt, Virginia Wade. Simultaneous holder of consecutive Australian Open and French Open titles, which she did from 90 to 93. She's the only player to do it. And so, I mean, again... It's a fascinating argument because the peak of Justine Ennen was exceptional. The longevity of Venus Williams was exceptional. But the peak, the post-tragedy career, just how good Monica Seles was, it's exceptional. And they're all exceptional cases, and it's really hard to break you know, between the margins. I would say at their best, you probably give it to Seles. I would say in terms of longevity, you have to give it to Venus. I would say in terms of five-year primes, I mean, just because, again, tragedy influenced Celis, but, you know, the five-year prime of Justine Ennin might have been better than both of these players. So it's a fascinating argument, and I look forward to breaking it down on tomorrow's mini-break podcast. I promise you we'd keep it under an hour. We are just hovering near that mark, so I'm going to wrap things up now. If you have missed any of the other arguments we have done for Venus Williams, for Justine Ennin, for the you know the big three and and Sampras and Lendl as well, be sure to go check out the mini-breaks we did earlier in, uh, this week as well as the ones over the past couple of weeks. We've had so many fantastic guests, people like Ben Rothenberg, John Wertheim, Mark Lucero, Steve Weissman, Bethany Maddox-Sands, Christian, uh, Claire Liu, Dennis Kudla, Chris Woodruff, Mitchell Kruger, and more across our various podcasts. So please like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, as well as the Great Shot podcast. Shout out, as always, to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out to keep all of this content coming your way here at Cracked Rackets. That's, you know, what we try to do. Again, we're trying to provide you guys any sort of momentary break in the grief, in the just the stresses we are all feeling in our day-to-day life. So, you know, if these podcasts do that for you, if our content does that for you, then we are certainly doing our job. And a huge shout-out to all of you 
uh, we really appreciate your continued support. Thank you so much. And to our Patreon subscribers as well, it means the world to us that so many of you are willing to can you know contribute to us at this time, even beyond just the dollar amount. It's the emotional help as well that that provides. It's, you know, it provides us gratification, and we so greatly appreciate that. So thank you so much. Go check out the YouTube channel as well. New episode of CR Classics, breaking down the 0-1 semifinal. Patrick Rafter knocking off Andre Agassi, 8-6 in the fifth set. It's Gil Gross and myself talking about that match. Don't miss Overserved either. And again, if you've missed any of our content, go to our website, CrackedRackets.com. Go to, um, if you need us, you know, throughout the day, the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's at CrackedRackets. You want to slide into my DMs, feel free to go for it, at GreatShotPod. Shout out again to our friends at Diadem Sports. Use that promo code CR50 when you go to their website, diademsports.com. You'll get 50% off your order. Shout out to our friends at Aerobar as well, the only tennis-specific energy bar out there. Use the promo code CRACKED30. You'll get 30% off all of your Aerobar needs. But with that being said, for our friends at Diadem Sports and Aerobar, our super producers, Max Flingner and Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.